I appreciate those who have the gift of blowing the shofar. It is a, it is a good gift. All right, speaking of gifts, that's what we're going to talk about today. Gifts, giftings, the spirit giftings, the gifts of the spirit. This is going to be a, a real introductory message today. Um, a lot of us, uh, some of us who went to the Tudukun conference a few weekends ago, um, we had shared over the past few weeks some of our testimony. And the primary thrust of what we shared had to do with God's power. It had to do with God glorifying himself by the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and through other people. And we were able to be there and experience that. And so I'm going to take some time to talk about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit giftings, the activity of the Holy Spirit, and, 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 and walk through that a little bit. Um, I feel like it's really relevant. You know, we just went through Shavuot, um, and talk, we always talk about Acts chapter 2 at Shavuot, and the, the work of the Holy Spirit there. So I feel like it, it's very relevant between that and what happened at Tikkun. And, and it's personally something that um, I feel like I need to ground myself better in my theology about this and my understanding about this. So um, everything that I'm going through is stuff that I'm working through myself as well. So it's going to be more of an exploratory discussion, an introductory discussion today, um, rather than really dr drilling down into the meat. So for those of you who really feel like you already have a robust theology in this area, um, I'll, say, I'll just ask you to bear with me in this and, uh, and, and uh, just allow us to walk through this process. I really feel like it's important for us to build a common foundation for the entire congregation from which to approach the topic of Holy Spirit activity. So I'm not going to cover everything um, to build a complete foundation. You know, many books, uh, doctoral theses have been written on these topics. I am not going to cover everything. I, I'll, I'll just acknowledge that right now. Um, one thing I am going to address is something that, something that I, did, I said, and that I said that I was raised uh, not believing in the current activity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that now that I do. And I didn't really give any scriptural voice to back up my change in theology. Did not, I didn't go to point to anything in Scripture that talks about that. Um, so I'm going to share some of that. I'm going to start to walk through some of that. And, uh, and, and regarding my own experience, though, I also want to state really clearly that if we develop our theology or our doctrine based on our experience, then we're going about it backwards. Okay? You're going about it backwards. Um, we are to interpret our experience through the lens of Scripture. Okay? We interpret our experience through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. Okay? It doesn't mean our experience is not important, but it's, it's an order of priority. Okay? Now, we can't help, because we're humans, we can't, cannot help but have some of our theology being shaded or colored by our experience. That's, that's just who we are, okay? And it's understandable, okay? And, and there are examples in Scripture, plenty of examples of Scripture, where a person's understanding of God was even changed by their experience, what God did for them. So it's not just some teaching or writing um, that, that happened. And so, yes, it, it's important that we that we interpret our life through the lens of Scripture. It also means that we have to have a proper understanding 
of that scriptural text. Okay? It would be, be a way to understand that scriptural text that we're reading. And so um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit as well. And one of the ways that we examine scripture and the question we ask when we're reading scripture as we're trying to understand it is whether it's being descriptive or prescriptive. Descriptive or prescriptive, okay? But, um, by annotation, descriptive is when the Bible is describing what happened or the way in which something happened, okay? Or maybe something will happen. It's describing the way something will happen. Um, prescriptive is when the Bible is describing that something should be done or the way that something, uh, the way that something should be done, okay? So there's some debate when we're talking about the Holy Spirit giftings whether the scripture is being descriptive about them, about the fact that, and saying, well, they only occurred at one time in history, and that's just describing how they happened. Or is it being prescriptive and saying, this is how things should be done for all time? And that's one of the debates in theological circles about the Holy Spirit giftings, is whether the scripture is being descriptive or prescriptive, and maybe it's some of both, depending on what you're reading in the scripture. And the, actually, that that's happening. Okay, so that's one of the things. Another thing I want to make sure of and, and mention this third thing is that what I'm sharing today and, and what I'm going to go into overall in this series is more of a campfire discussion. Okay, what I mean when I say that is in reference to recent messages where I talked about tribes and campfires. Okay, and this is a discussion within our tribe. Okay. Um, where agreeing or disagreeing over the current activity of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the nuances that that whole discussion entails does not exclude someone from our spiritual tribe. This is a discussion within our tribe, okay? It's not an exclusionary item here, okay? So that's, that's what I wanted to mention. And lastly, I will say that I always try and uh, be somewhat pragmatic or practical in what I share with you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get into a ton of that. I'll probably try and get into some practical application of theology today at, at best, um, just at least for foundational purposes. So that's where I wanted to start. And, and when I shared in my, in my testimony uh, two weeks ago on this topic, um, I told you that I was raised in a cessationist household, in a cessationist congregation, and, and I want to make sure, and I, I'm very clear um, when I define that word cessationist, what I mean by cessationist is that we believe that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased to function. So cessationist is related to the word ceased in English. And they ceased to function in the way that's described um, throughout Scripture, but primarily described in the apostolic writings of the Brit Hadashah, that the way that the Spirit and the gifts operated that they had ceased, okay? That's how I was raised. And I will tell you, just in hindsight, you know, it feels a little bit ironic and that, that I was raised that way. And, I, and I'll, I'll try to describe to you why. Because I was raised in a, in a branch of, of Christianity that came out of the Great Awakening movement in the, in the early 1800s, okay? Um, it was called the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. And so they, they, they thought of themselves as restorationists. And, and one of their, their primary goal was an attempt to restore 
the, uh, what they viewed as pure New Testament Christianity. Okay? That, was, that was their goal. Um, and so they were um, sola scriptura in the sense that scripture only, um, trying to be true to the first century. And so the super high view of scripture, which I totally agree with. You know, we have to have the highest view of Scripture, uh, as Sola Scriptura intends. But, but the, the issue there, and the, and the nuance in there, is that even if I believe and I have the highest view of Scripture, um, it still depends on who determines whose interpretations of the Scripture are correct. And how is that determined, Right? whose interpretations of it are correct. And so, and so they, get, they had schisms, even within that little restoration movement that happened. They had schisms. And, uh, and I was raised in one of the branches of those schisms that, uh, that they divided up between themselves. And, but ultimately, those schisms started out of a foundation where they had already rejected the doctrine. They were already cessationists. Okay? They had rejected the, the continuation of the miraculous gifts as being as being uh, present today. And so that feels ironic in hindsight because this was a body of believers whose goal was restoring pure New Testament Christianity. And, uh, and they were rejecting something that was abundantly present in the New Testament. And they, they were rejecting something that was very clearly written about because it didn't fit within their cessationist foundation that they were coming from. Okay. Uh, within there, and, and they had some theology there to back that up. Now, if you were raised in a church, or you were raised in a synagogue, I'm sure you have a different experience, a distinct experience, a different foundational theology for me, um, and you may have been a part of those who really placed a strong emphasis on the miraculous gifts. I, I didn't have that growing up, so this is me learning about it right now. Um, but others of you in here, you may have never even thought about, well, what is my theology? What do I really believe about this? You might, you might not have thought, thought about that. So if you fall into that category, I really hope you will understand the importance of this, of this, of this topic. Um, <clears throat> so I want to start out with some definitions for you about what we're talking about. I, I talked to you, I mentioned the word cessationist, and, but there's even some nuance in there. Um, so I saw a couple of definitions from Baptist pastor Gavin Orland. He, he described three uh, broad categories of, of giftings, of Holy Spirit giftings, or beliefs in Holy Spirit giftings within Protestant theology, traditional Protestant theology. And this would, this would be inclusive of what Messianic Jews believe as well. Okay? Okay, so number one, there's what we would call strict cessationists. Okay? These are these are people that, have, that believe that there are no genuine manifestations of miraculous gifts of the Spirit after a certain point in history. Okay? Let's call them strict cessationists. Um, so classical examples of a strict cessationist, uh, if you think about like famous preachers or theologians in the past, you'd be thinking about people like Jonathan Edwards or B.B. Uh, Warfield. Okay? So um, for example, like Warfield, um, he was a longtime professor at Princeton um, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he even authored a book on this topic, or multiple books on this topic, <clears throat> um, to, because he felt so passionately about this, about cessationism, okay? And, but even if you compared the beliefs of Jonathan Edwards and B.B. Warfield, or other strict cessationists, you would see that they differed really greatly. They don't agree on everything about their own theology and the gifts of the Spirit, 
um, they, they differed in which gifts have ceased, okay? Was it just the gifts of tongues and prophecy? Or was it other gifts such like healing and discerning of spirits, things like that? Um, they, they differed in their beliefs of when they ceased, okay? Um, was it at the close of the canon of Scripture? Was it at the death of the last apostle? Was it when Constantine uh, came onto the scene? Uh, they, so the timing of it, they differed in. And, and most importantly, they differed in why they ceased as well. Why did the spiritual gifts cease in their mind? Um, you know, Warfield, he, uh, he focused on the role that the gifts played for confirming or authenticating the 12 apostles. And he said, well, you know, that's what they were for. And so when the 12 apostles were gone, they ceased. And, and Jonathan Edwards, he was like, no, it, it's not that. It's that uh, they ceased because... 1 Corinthians teaches us that love is greater than the gifts. And so when love was, uh, love basically, I don't know how to describe it, I, as good as Jonathan Edwards described it, but love um, out, outworked all the gifts and we don't need them anymore, okay? And that's why the gifts have ceased. Um, I, I realize I didn't put that argument nearly as well as he would have. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, he was a great preacher. So... Um, much better than I. So that's strict cessationists. The second category of those who, of how, of theology or theologians with regard to the gifts of the Spirit and the activity of the Spirit, we would call mild cessationists. So there's strict cessationists and there's some mild cessationists. So um, classic, historical, uh, mild cessationists, you point to people like John Calvin, um, Puritan theologian John Owen. Those are some classical uh, mild cessationists, they would hold that, yeah, the miraculous gifts have ceased in the sense that they're not any, they're no longer what they would call normative, okay? They wouldn't call them normative for the body, um, but they do allow them for various times in various contexts. Um, for instance, John Calvin, he, he said that, um, <clears throat> that the, uh, the gifts for prophecy and apostleship were, would come even as needed, okay? For as, as it demanded as the gospel was penetrating new cultures. So he believed that as the gospel spread to new cultures that those gifts would be used like prophecy and apostleship. Um, but even as mild cessationists, they also you know, had the same disagreements that the strict cessationists had about which gifts have ceased, when they ceased, why they ceased, things like that. Okay? Never any real agreement there. Okay, so there's two types of cessationists. And then there's what we call continuationists. These, this is the, the third category of believing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, continuationists. And so you think about the words, and so you have ceasing, and then you have continuing. So obviously continuationists believe in the continuing function of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous gifts in their doctrine and their practice. Um, with, with the understanding, and I'll make sure to be very clear about that, with the understanding that the, that the canon of Scripture is still closed. And I... And, and we'll talk about that more later, but the, uh, it, that is super important to understand. But classically, uh, historical examples of continuationists would be someone like Martin Luther uh, John, uh, or John Knox, um, leader of the, Mar the Reformation in Scotland, or Samuel Rutherford. He was one of the people who wrote some of the Westminster Confession. Okay? Um, but even then, within continuationists, there's a diversity. There's a belief a diversity of belief in the scale or the magnitude of the gifts, okay? So uh, we'll just say there's a big scale out here that we're exploring, and you're going to fall somewhere on that scale, whether you know it or not, okay? I fall somewhere on that scale, and, and, and we, we might change uh, just based on what God teaches us in this series. 
because that, that diversity continues today about the activity of the spirits. There, there are many people that are cessationists. There are many people that are continuationists. And there are a lot of people that have no idea what they want to think about these. Okay? So my goal in this series, again, is to look at what the Bible says about the activity of the Holy Spirit and help us to understand and develop some, some good foundational theology about this. So I just want to start, as we go into the scripture, by just talking about the word for spirit as well. So there's two primary words that we use in Scripture if we go back to the original language, right? We know what the one in Hebrew is, right? Ruach, yes. The one in Hebrew is Ruach. The one in Greek is Pneuma in Greek. So Ruach and Pneuma are the two primary words if you go to the original language and you're going to be studying the original language of on the spirit, and you want to do some, some language study, you're going to look for those two words, ruach and pneuma. Now, <clears throat> I will say that um, you can't just look for every instance of those words and think that that's talking about the Holy Spirit, okay? Because those words are much broader in context. They also mean things like breath and wind, things like that. So you have to really read the context and see what are they talking about within the, within the scripture there. Um, I actually did a study with the youth group several years ago on this, and we found out that in that time, when we studied, we went through all the Tanakh, we found at least 75 times in the Tanakh, throughout the Tanakh, where the word Ruach is used in reference to the actual Holy Spirit. Okay? At least 75 times that it's in the Tanakh. Um, <clears throat> so the Tanakh covers a, a long time, though. 75 times. It's covering thousands of years of history there in the Tanakh. Uh, if you look at the, the Brit Hadashah and you, and you look for the word pneuma there in, in, and in context as it's being used with the Holy Spirit, it's found 243 times. So I didn't, I didn't sit there and do the math, but that's over three times, I think. Um, not four times, but it's over three times the amount <clears throat> in the New Testament and the Brit Hadashah is in the Old Testament or in the Tanakh. And and the New Testament is a much smaller time period, the, the time that it's covered over, okay? Um, very, much, much smaller time period. You know, we're talking like 90 years, maybe, that were, that were of his actual history, okay? So, century, less than a century. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just say it covers one century, just to, be, just to be broad enough here. We cover one century versus multiple millennium in the, in the Tanakh, and we have three times as many references to it in, is in, in the New Testament, in the Brit Hadashah. So there's a, basically that's just to say that there's a significant concentration of discussion of the Holy Spirit in the Brit Hadashah, in the New Testament. Um, and that's, that's why we're going to spend a lot of our time there as well. Um, we, could, we could talk about the Holy Spirit activity throughout the scripture, and, and it is important to understand that, that we should look at that overall in our theology, because our theology and our foundation needs to be consistent throughout Scripture, okay? Not just looking at one portion of Scripture, but we need to be consistent with all of Scripture, to not concluded when we're thinking about the activity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that each of the uh, differing groups, again, they believe in the, uh, <clears throat> the... They have differing beliefs on the current activity of the Holy Spirit. What they hold in common, though as I said before, and again, I want to repeat this, is that the canon of Scripture is closed, okay? So, 
In, in, in thinking about continuationists, I will tell you that no responsible continuationist believes that more scripture is being written down today. Okay? We do not believe that at all. Okay? Um, the Bible is complete. It is God's full general revelation to us. Okay? He gives us his word, and, and he says that we are not to add to it in that sense. So um, <clears throat> when you hear someone speaking and saying, well, God gave me a word, okay, okay that's not adding to Scripture, and we're not adding to Scripture. We're not to add to Scripture at all. Okay, so I want to be very, very, very clear on that as we are talking about this. So enough on my preview on the topic. Let's get to the text of Scripture, okay? Um, as a baseline, I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. So I want you guys to go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, okay? Um, this chapter and the two chapters that follow, they are really comprehensive um, on the giftings of the Spirit in the same way that Leviticus 23 is for the Moedim, for the holidays. So um, <clears throat> these chapters um, are ones that you should highlight or bookmark as a valuable resource in your scripture when you want to think about the giftings of the Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 13 and 14. We're going to hang out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. In fact, so much so, I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed by idols that cannot speak. You got led astray. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Ruach Elohim says, Yeshua be cursed. And no one can say Yeshua is Lord except by the Ruach HaKodesh. Now there are various kinds of gifts, but the same Ruach. There are various kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are various kinds of working, but the same God who works all things in all people. But to each person is given the manifestation of the Ruach for the benefit of all. For to one is given through the Ruach a word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge, according to the same Ruach. To another, faith by the same Ruach. To another, giftings of healings, gifts of healings by one Ruach. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Ruach activates all these things, distributing to each person individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and, and all parts of the body, though many are one body, so also is Messiah. For in one Ruach we are all immersed into one body, whether Jewish or Greek, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Ruach. For the body is not one part but many. If the foot says, since I am not a hand, I am not part of the body, is it therefore not part of the body? If, it hear, if the ear says, since I am not an eye, I am not part of the body, is it, is it for this reason any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the parts, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one part, where would the body be? But now there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot tell the hand, I don't need you, or in turn the head to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be less important are indispensable. 
those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with great honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no such need. Rather, God assembled the body, giving more honor to those who are lacking, so that there may be no division in the body, <clears throat> but so that, many, so that the parts may, come, may have the same care for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer together. If one part is honored, all the parts rejoice together. Now you are the body of Messiah and members individually. God has put into his community first emissaries, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then healings, helps, leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are not all emissaries? All are not emissaries, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All do not work miracles, do they? All do not have the gift of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I still, and still I show you a far better way. And we'll stop there. And we could go into that far better way. 1 Corinthians 13, also popularly known as the love chapter, preached at many weddings. All right, so that's a, the first primer that we have, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, on the gifts of the Spirit. And a note on the original language that's talking about this here. Um, Rav Shul, the Apostle Paul here, he uses the word charismata here in 1 Corinthians 12, when he's discussing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So it's a Greek word, charismata. It's a plural. It's, the, it's talking about gifts, plural, okay? Um, and uh, it's, it's the word charisma. So you probably have heard the word charisma. Maybe you even use the word charisma. We've adopted that as an English word now. When we say someone has charisma, you know, they've got some certain uh, personality appeal to them, um, is how we kind of use that in English. But um, it's, the Greek word is talking about is a, is a Holy Spirit gifting here um, that we, or a spiritual gift that we have. So this is also where we get the word charismatic, okay? Um, which in English can be used as a substitute for continuationist in, in, a, in a theological sense um, <clears throat> because as we noted earlier, it's someone who believes in the continued gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, so charismatics, they certainly believe in the continued gifts of the Holy Spirit, though I will also tell you that uh, the word charismatic tends to refer to a very specific theology about the gifting of the Holy Spirit, um, a very specific type of belief that really places high emphasis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the workings of the Holy Spirit, the current activity of the Holy Spirit, places a very high, high theology on that, um, in, there, in that, so um, it's not 100% interchangeable with the word continuationist. But I did want to at least make that known that when we think about those words and where that word came from, charis charisma or, or charismatic or charismata in the, uh, in the Greek, um, that's right here. That's, it's talking about the spiritual gifts. Now, outside of the original language note, um, in the early part of this chapter, it really gives us some, some uh, important reminders. And the first reminder that I see in here in, in 1 Corinthians 12 is that it, it says that we should not be ignorant about the spiritual gifts. We should not be ignorant. I do, he says, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant about these. So, if you're listening today and you've held this at arm's length, 
the gifts of the Spirit and the understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe it's confusing to you. Maybe you've heard examples of craziness or abuse within the gifts of the Spirit, and you've just kind of held it at arm's length, okay? Um, I'm here to tell you that you're still without excuse, okay? We are commanded not to be ignorant on this topic. We, we need to understand this. So I am imploring you to join me on this journey um, as, I, as we walk through this. So don't be ignorant about this topic, the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, the second thing this chapter tells us, or reminds us, is in verse 4, where it notes that there are various gifts. Okay? There are many gifts. Some, some people would get hyper-focused on one particular gift, or maybe two particular gifts um, in their theology, and really saying, well, everybody who has gifts has to have that one gift, though, for sure. Otherwise, you don't have the gifts of the Spirit, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, so we have to keep in mind that there are multiple kinds of gifts in play here. Um, that's, that's what I want to share. Now, there are a lot of other lessons we can gain from 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to save them for another message. Um, we're going to get to that. Uh, but just want to list out the gifts, okay? Um, the gifts, starting in verse 8, uh, we have a gift of the words of wisdom. We have words of knowledge. We have faith. We have healing. We have miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, and different kinds of tongues, okay? Those are eight gifts that are listed there. Now, we would consider these the miraculous gifts of the Spirit when these occur. Now, but they're not the only spiritual gifts because if we look at the end of the chapter, Paul lists another set of eight gifts. <clears throat> we might understand these as gifted roles, though. Not necessarily the same, in the same way that the others are listed, but these are gifted roles. We have emissaries or apostles. We have prophets, teachers. And then it says miracles, healings, helps, leadership or administration, and various kinds of tongues. You know, the, the speaking and discernment of those tongues or interpretation of those tongues. So we have overlapping lists of the gifts of the Spirit. But those, I, I just wanted to put those out there in front of you and say, just to make sure we're very clear about what we're talking about here. Uh, those specific gifts of the Spirit. And, and I, I would, do want to make a side note on, on one of them. Um, <clears throat> the role, the first role that he's mentioned, he mentions there, um, some of your translations say, call it emissaries. Some of your translations call it apostles there. Um, and the reason I want to point this out is to differentiate between what I'll call big A apostles and, and little a apostles. Or, in other words, to differentiate the, the 12 apostles and between someone who's operating in an apostolic role or in an apostle role. And the reason I'm drawing that distinction, um, you know, the, the, this distinction between this special group of men who walked with Yeshua and someone who has that generally spiritually gifted role for the body Messiah, um, it's not, because Paul doesn't draw a distinction here, okay? I want to be very clear about that. There, I'm not drawing this from the text here uh, at all, but I'm telling you this because it has to do with the theology of continuationists where some believe that the gift of apostleship um, was limited to just the 12 original men in Scripture or to the original apostles, and some believe that it was a general gifted role that continues today. Okay, um, not, not to say that they're in equal stature with the original apostles, okay, 
but in the principle of someone who oversees, someone who feeds into a group of congregations in an area, they, they act in a role of an apostle. So I just want to be clear on that because that does, there is some nuance in theology about that particular gifting and role there that I don't want to get lost as we eventually will talk about it more. Okay, <clears throat> so that's the giftings of the Spirit, right? And, and the list of them. And now, So now that we know exactly what we're talking about as far as the activity and the gifts of the Spirit are concerned, I want us to turn now to developing sound doctrine about those gifts. How do we develop sound doctrine surrounding the gifts? And so, in doing so, I want us to go to Acts chapter 4. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read, starting in verse 23. Okay. Starting in verse 23, Peter and John had been detained by the Sanhedrin, by the leaders, the Jewish leaders. It says, starting in verse 23, as soon as they were released, Peter and John went to their own people and reported all that the ruling Kohanim and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God, together to God and said, O oh, sovereign master, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You said by the Ruach HaKodesh, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot foolish things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against Adonai, against his anointed one. For truly, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, were gathered together in this city against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed. They did whatever your hand and your purpose predetermined to happen. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant your servants to speak your word with utmost courage while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And when they prayed, the place they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> Peter and John, they were detained. They were questioned by the Sanhedrin, the ruling leaders, because they had started to cause some trouble in Jerusalem. Uh, the ruling priests and elders really thought that they had put an end to this Yeshua thing, but then Shavuot happened, right? The, the pouring out of the Spirit happened. Many thousands of, of people came to believe. It says 3,000 came to believe put their faith in Yeshua as the Holy Spirit was working in miraculous ways and gave boldness to the apostles. And so Peter and John, they'd been arrested, they'd been questioned, they'd been threatened, they were eventually released. And so what did they do when they, when they got released? What did they do? They prayed when they got released. They prayed. They gathered together, they got their people together, and they prayed when they were released. And when they pray... We see two things when they pray. And we see a commitment in their prayer. We see a commitment to sound doctrine. And we see a commitment to the working of the Holy Spirit. So I want to talk about how they demonstrate that in their prayer. Um, and so I'm going to look through their prayer again. And what they do is they, they start out by acknowledging that God is sovereign. Okay, so we talked about this a little bit in our Torah study this morning. 
uh, I mentioned it after we praise and worship, but they, they talked about how they acknowledge that God is sovereign. They, they even address him, at least in, in my translation. They, they start out by saying, O sovereign master. They're addressing God as sovereign. Incredibly important uh, sound doctrine to have established is that God is sovereign. We have to, have to, have to start there. He is in charge of all things. He looks at every detail of our lives. Even down to our faith that he grants us. He looks at all of those details. Okay? And so the, the apostles, they, they acknowledged that it was God who made everything. It was God who spoke through the Spirit, through David. It was God in Yeshua, God's anointed, that Herod and Pontius Pilate and many others were opposed to it. And those did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predetermined. Because he's sovereign. It was decided that all of this would happen beforehand, that Pilate and Herod and, and, and many others, the Gentiles, the religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, the false charges, the nails through the stake, they were all predestined by God to take place. God planned for these things to happen because he is in control of all things. And they're, being, they're holding to that, to that sound doctrine in their prayer. They understood that what had just happened, the, the crucifixion of Yeshua, was not just human activity. It was God activity. They knew that. So they, they demonstrated that, that understanding as they prayed. And then they said, now grant us courage, God. Grant us courage to speak your word. It's not just courage to stand up to those guys who are being mean to us. No, it's courage to speak the word, the gospel, the good news. That's what they were, they weren't, they weren't wanting courage to puff themselves up, to be important in and of themselves, to raise their stature above the ruling leaders. They were wanting courage to speak the word of God. And that's super important. They, they were wanting that courage. And then they demonstrated the commitment to the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit by saying, and while you, sovereign God, you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders to take place through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. They were, they were following that commitment to the Holy Spirit acting. And who is acting beyond Shavuot. We are after Shavuot here, okay? So they're saying, at least in an immediate sense, that Peter and John and the disciples, they were continuationists, at least in an immediate sense. Okay, they were expecting God to continue to work through the Holy Spirit, to do his activity, Okay. So we see that there in, in, in that prayer when they, when they were praying for that courage and asking for healing and signs and wonders to take place. They were expecting it. They wanted it. They wanted the boldness to preach the gospel, but not just that. They were asking God to do things. They asked God to manifest his glory, his kingdom. His kingdom was breaking in, breaking into this world. And so they, were saying, they were asking for signs and wonders, for miracles, the type of giftings at Shavuot were not just a one-time event for them. We see evidence of that. It's very clear. Now, now, if you were to just transplant their prayer into today's day and age, you might call them the crazy charismatics. You might. You might associate them with something that, you know, 
that a crazy Pentecostal person would, would believe today, okay? But I, and I don't say that just to, to, to do anything in justifying any particular charismatic or Pentecostal theology, but just to note that these disciples who were doctrinally sound were saying, we want these things to happen. We want these things to happen. And we don't want it just to happen because it's exciting. We want these things to happen because this is part of the gospel going forward to the ends of the earth and people being saved. That's why we want these things to happen. It's not about us. It's about God. And what God is doing for him. It's a different motivation. Okay? They were praying for it and asking for it also because they did not... They, they, they did not think, I think, that, that, that simply speaking the words of the gospel was the only thing that God wanted to do. He knew that God wanted to use his power to, to grow his kingdom, to expand his kingdom. And I think we as a congregation, we, we would also agree that simply imparting knowledge of God is not enough. I've been talking about this all year long that simply knowing is not enough. I can know everything all day long, and it doesn't change me. I think the apostles knew this too, that, that the giftings of the Spirit needed to be there. People needed to see what God was doing. So I'm going to ask a really rhetorical question. Okay, probably seem obvious to most people here. Why, why does it matter, okay, for the sake of sound doctrine, that we keep and hold together the good news with the expectation of God's Spirit to do things. Why, why do we need to hold those two things together for the sake of us having sound doctrine? Okay? The good news and the activity of God's Spirit. Why do we hold those together? And I want to go to Acts chapter 1. So just flip backwards a page or two. We're going to close here today and then we'll have our Kiddish time. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Yeshua is speaking here. He says, But you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in, Jer in Jerusalem and throughout all Judah and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judah, and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. So Yeshua is speaking. These are his final earthly words before his ascension. He's talking to his disciples there, saying, you will be my witnesses. And the witness is that Yeshua lived. He died. He rose again. And the repentance of sin and faith in Yeshua will bring about forgiveness. This is the same message that Peter preached at Shavuot 10 days later. Okay? That's the witness. And he says, you're going to tell that to people. You will be my witnesses. You will tell that to people, okay, with sound doctrine, okay? This is, you're going to tell this to people. It's, this is sound doctrine. We have to hold to this, okay? This is good news. But witness is not the only thing. It's not the, only the telling. The witness is associated with or accompanied by power, the working of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. The, the witness is accompanied by the working of the Holy Spirit, the things that only God can do. So we know that, yeah, okay, conviction of sin, bringing someone to repentance, those are certainly works of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but that's not what we're talking about here. There's more to it. And so if we were to read through the whole rest of the book of Acts, we would see 
the witness that Yeshua spoke of, okay? What was God doing to show that his gospel, that this gospel, the Basora, the good news, was true, okay? There is a resurrection. There are miracles. There is a kingdom that's coming. And in fact, it's here now, and it's breaking into this world. It's to renew this world, and it's, and it's coming. And the witness is that we have an axe, as this telling and this activity of the Holy Spirit, they're paired together time and time and time again. We see that throughout the book of Acts. The witness and the activity of the Holy Spirit get paired together. And so we have to understand that as we're establishing sound doctrine around the Holy Spirit and the activity of the Holy Spirit, that there's an expectation for God's Spirit to do things with the witness of his gospel. So I'm going to stop there today. I'm just going to leave it there. I'm kind of a, an, an abrupt stopping point. Um, but we're going to continue on this next week, or in two weeks, I should say. Next week is the uh, bar and bat mitzvah. So we'll, we'll take a break, continue on this in two weeks. Um, so we've, really, we've, we've just really gotten a shallow introduction today. We've, we've read through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the listing of them. We've, we... Uh, and we've looked at uh, an example in Acts about talking about sound doctrine, right? And, and so we're going to touch on examples of that in the next teaching. We're actually going to go through Acts. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go right back to 1 Corinthians 12 um, quite yet. There, there's a lot of important things we can gather from there, but we're gonna, we'll get there. Um, I want us to focus on building sound doctrine first around this idea of the activity of the Holy Spirit. And then once we've done that, we're going to talk about the gifts more specifically. So... Over the next few weeks, I um, just want to encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 again, um, and uh, read through the book of Acts, too. There's only 28 chapters in Acts, so if you read four chapters a day, you can read it through in a week. So that means in two weeks, you can read it through twice. So, there you go. In three weeks, you could read it through three times, right? Just do the math there. Um, and we'll take action. Yes, that is right. In any case, I, I hope today that uh, its introduction has achieved its purpose to at least lay a beginning of some foundational theology with regard to the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Um, I will ask for you who, again, I remind you who are way ahead of me on this, just to bear with me as I catch up to you. I am very conservative, and I'm going to be slow to catch up to where you're at. Um, but we're going to walk through this together. So, um, I'm looking forward. I'm really looking forward to the rest of the series and what God is going to teach us through this. That's where I'm going to stop today. Um, can you guys bring out the uh, Kiddush table? And uh, we will continue with that. <laughs>